I'm going to ask you to turn back to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're kind of doing an overview here. And because I know that you're going to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, um, we could just almost jump in anywhere. There's five of these seven churches that there were indictments. Last week we looked at the commendations. Uh, This morning we'll look at confrontations. And so I I want us to think about, I guess, one of the most tragic statements um, since we started with Ephesus and we'll conclude with Laodicea, and then we're looking at everything in between. Let's look at the church at Laodicea where your Bible's open and, and get a feel for one of these indictments, one of these confrontations. In the series called Unconquered, the church will be unconquered, the church that is the true church, the authentic church of Jesus Christ. But there's some confrontations because there was a danger that some believers might not be in on that. So to the angel, verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, To the angel of the church at Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the originator of God's creation, says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now there are some... Scenes in the Bible that are somewhat explicit and other scenes that are just gross. This is one of those that you don't really know what to do with. God says to the church at Laodicea, you make me sick. I pray that God would never say that about you or me or this church. But he certainly had to say it before. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to speak his words in these seven churches to us today. Father, we thank you again for your word. We have celebrated the word of God this morning. Now as we proclaim the word, I pray that we would also heed James chapter 1, Lord, where you tell us to not be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. And Lord, last week as we looked at the commendations in these passages of these churches, these letters, Lord, uh, and, and we saw certain values that the churches were embracing, I pray that today that we would see warnings of not embracing other values that we might as a church, not compromise our beliefs, and that we would stand strong on the unchanging Word of God. Lord, speak to us by your Spirit to your people today, Lord, in a way that would bring life change in how we live Monday through Saturday as much as how we worship on Sunday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Some of you might remember when you were growing up, the neighbor's kids would get away from something from time to time that you knew you couldn't get away with, and maybe you got in trouble with the neighbor's kids, and you heard uh, the same thing I would have heard, and like, well, why didn't they get in trouble for that? And your parents said, well, they're not my kids. (laughs) Jesus comes to confront his church, and in these seven letters in Revelation, as we said in the introduction of this, some see seven church ages, and certainly it would appear in many places in the United States that We are living in the age or the days of Laodicea, an age in the days of the lukewarm church, especially in our nation. But as I I referred to uh, with Dr. Patterson's comments, you can find these seven churches all around the world today. You can find churches that are like the church at Philadelphia, that there's really nothing you can say except for good job, keep up the good work. You can find these churches situated all around the world today, but certainly there's uh, uh, things that need to be confronted in churches all around 
the world today. Just to review a little bit from last week, and I've never taken this approach where I said, let's look at all seven letters at the same time, and, and, and let's expound upon those things that are being commended and those things, then again, that are being confronted. And so I said there would be several values that emerged, and we looked at three of those values last week, and with part one of the message, we looked at the commendations for what I called actual values. These were things that Jesus commended because some of the churches were getting these things right. And in those actual values where he said, yes, you, you value this, it's based on the Word of God, you believe this, we said that there was a commendation in some of the churches for a diligence in their works. We also said that Jesus commended a dedication to the Word. Those that were believing right and those that were confronting heresies, destructive doctrines that were coming into the church, when they stood against that attack, he commended them and said, good job, and I pray that we will always be a church and that we will be made up of families, Christians, that say we will stand on the Word of God. We will believe this Word. We will not compromise truth, even in a generation, even in a world that might seek to lure us in that direction. And then Jesus commends determination in their walk, when their character matched up with what they were preaching. He commended them for that. So we saw that uh, last week uh, there were commendations, something good to say of, at least of six of the seven churches, and then there's going to be confrontations in at least five of these churches where he says, we've, we've got to deal with a few things though. And, and so today I want to move from what we will call commendations for actual values to confrontation of aspirational values. Now, when I say aspirational, there are things that churches know they need to be about. They aspire to be about those things. And, and sometimes we will even have those listed in our core values and say, as a church, we believe we need to be about this. But just because we know it's true and we know it's the Word of God and we know we ought to live by it, doesn't mean that it's always there. And so there were some aspirational values some things that the church should have been living by that they weren't living by. I was speaking earlier about when the kids in the neighborhood, you got in trouble and they didn't. Uh, those who knew me when I was really young knew I, I grew up in a neighborhood that had a bunch of rough boys. I mean, we got into all kinds of trouble. Now, most people would look at me most of the time and they say, you know, that Robbie, he's a good kid. You know what it meant when they were saying that, Robbie, he's a good kid? They didn't know what they meant. I knew what they meant. What I interpreted that as is I'm smarter than all my friends in the neighborhood because I'm getting away with things they never get away with. And, I mean, we used to do all kinds of tricks. We were known. We would, we would take a bicycle inner tube and cut it and fill it with sand and tie the ends of it and put fishing line on one end and pull the fishing line across the dirt road that we lived on at that time. It's been paved since. We'd run that fishing line across the road and, and up into the woods with us and up in a tree. And, and so the pickup trucks would come down the road in the dark with their headlights on. And we'd, we'd start pulling that inner tube like a snake crossing the road just to watch men stop and put their tires and spin out and all that kind of stuff. We'd take our sister's cabbage patch dolls because we couldn't think of anything better to do with them. And we'd take those dolls and we'd stand them up in the middle of the road where they, when they crossed the hill in front of my house and they saw this toddler standing in the street... It would make them slam on their brakes. And, and, uh, you, and we, th this group of guys I ran, when Halloween got really bad, I won't even tell you what we did with matches and brown bags and dog mess, but um, all kinds of tricks, the guys in my, just, you know, and I was the one, I, I thought we'd get away with this. And, and so everything you could do in the neighborhood to just kind of 
be that wild gang of guys that ran around the neighborhood and tried not to get in too much trouble, but got in enough trouble the way it was, and, and there were certain guys that if I hung with them, I was going to get in more trouble than the others. Well, then, lo and behold, they built Georgia Square Mall. It means we've got a new place to romp and run, right? If we could just get one parent. Because back then, you know, you could get like nine boys in a Nova. You know, that's the way it, there were no seatbelt laws. And so just everybody get in the car, ride out. Somebody, some mom somewhere just ready to get boys out of the house or out of the neighborhood. Take us to Georgia Square Mall. I believe it was the early 1980s, 81, 82 when that mall came about. And so I'm there with my buddies and we're, we're playing hide and seek in the stores and running around hiding in clothes racks going through those exit doors that go in behind all the stores and they probably weren't supposed to be there we're running around we're goofing off getting in trouble doing things we shouldn't have been doing again I'm the one that always got away with it my buddies always got caught and um and I remember a couple of us running as hard as we could into the elevator and I don't remember what mischief we had been in. We never stole anything or hurt anybody as far as I know. We didn't hurt anybody. Maybe missing the wishing well from uh, the upstairs balcony when they used to have that and hitting somebody in the head or something with a penny. I don't know. But anyway, we, we, we had done something that had us running into the elevator. And I remember, and I was about sixth grade at this time, and I remember running into the elevator going, nobody can see me now. And I turned around, and I heard this voice. And the voice said, Robbie... My friend's name was Michael. Michael, y'all better be behaving. And I look around, and lo and behold, it is my fourth grade teacher, Miss Jane Coyle. Some of you are related to Miss Coyle. She was standing in there, and I knew that she loved me because I'd had her as a fourth grade teacher. I knew that she was a great teacher. I knew that she cared about me as a person and all that. But I also know she had a way of looking at you that looked like she could see into your eyes, right into your soul, and she said, Robbie and Michael, y'all better be behaving. And I, I honestly, even though it was two years removed from her classroom, thought she could take that paddle out right now. And all of a sudden, I found myself on my best behavior. Some, something about a godly confrontation that says, I needed to hear that. I need to shape up. Here's Jesus, the one with the those penetrating eyes we saw in chapter 1, and I know Dr. Moon preached a great message on the second half of chapter 1. The one with those penetrating eyes who could look into the soul uh, uh, of the church. And he says, yes, I'm right there in the midst of you. I am with you in the midst of suffering. But I'm also with you in a way that while you might think you're getting away with a few things, I'm here to confront that. And you know that I love you. You know that I died for you, and I rose again, and when I speak, I mean business, just like my fourth grade teacher. When she spoke, I knew she meant business. And so, Jesus has some words of confrontation, calls us to sit up, take notice, and say, do I need to make adjustments in my life? Do we need to make adjustments as a church, as a denomination, as a church in this nation, as the church in the world? Jesus is in the midst Offering hope and strength, but also warning. And we'll see some of those warnings. And the first, aspirational value, something that was lacking in at least one or two churches here, was the passion for worship. Jesus confronted worship that was lacking in passion. And we see that beginning with the church at Ephesus, chapter 2. And we talked about all the wonderful things he had to say. Remember this church? They were rocking and rolling for God. They were doing a lot of good things. 
But look at verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned that first love, that priority love. They were working hard, but they had lost the proper motivation for the work. And that is, it should be the overflow of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you, when I dealt with that last week, and I talked about we need to find our place of service in the local church, and we need to get busy and roll up our sleeves. We don't know how much daylight we have left before the night comes, and we cannot work anymore, and we need to get after it. Some of you are going, but I'm so tired, and, and I, I just, man, I'm, I've just grown weary and well-doing, and it's, and it's hard to just keep working, and it's hard to keep serving, and I would say absolutely it is, unless you have an overflowing love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're serving out of a great passion for Him. And out of that love and that worship of giving everything that you are to all that He is, it's when that passion begins to fall, when that passion begins to die, when you lose that fire, that you begin to lose your passion for all the other things. So they were serving, they were working, but they had lost the proper motivation for service. And in verse 5 he says, go back and find it. You go back to where you lost it. He says, remember how far you have fallen? Think back to what it was like when it was right. Think back to that time when you got saved. Think back to that time when you were more in love with Jesus Christ. Think about that time after that crusade or that revival or something that you experienced in a personal quiet time when you were alone with God. Think back to what it was like when it was right and renew that first love, that infatuation, that passion that you had for the things of God. He says, repent, turn, just come back. It's, it's, it's a, in the sense of right now, repent. See, a lot of times we're like, you know what, I'm going to get, I'm gonna have to get things right. I, I, somehow I'm going to have to turn this train around. And spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying, this can happen right now, right now. You can turn it around and you can draw close to him and he will draw close to you and you can renew that new love, that, that first love. That passion, this is a, a chronological kind of love. It, it, it's, remember what it was like at the first, when it, when it all got started? Go back to that. Go back to that time when your worship, your love for Jesus Christ was not lacking in passion. When I use the word worship there, I'm, I'm referring to the fact that the greatest commandment, the first commandment, is, is one of worship, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that that would be the number one guiding passion of your life, was to give your life as an act of worship. I'm not talking about just on Sunday morning at 1045. I'm talking about as a way of life of just loving Christ with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, living out that greatest commandment. And some of you are like, man, I, I, I'm doing good. I am serving. I'm busy like the church at Ephesus. I'm doing a lot of good things. But you're kind of like Martha in the whole scenario there remember mary and martha and martha was busy serving and mary was sitting at the feet of jesus and martha had that personality of like hey am i doing all the work around here nobody else is doing anything jesus why don't you tell mary to get off her rear and well, she didn't say it that way that's the rsv the robbie standard version but tell mary to get off of her rear and get in the kitchen and help me out a little bit and jesus said martha martha <laughs> Mary has chosen what is better, what is the priority here, the first love. The most important thing is to love Jesus, to worship him, to have a passion for Christ. The works will come because it will be an overflow of the love, and it won't be drudgery then. It will be joy because you're doing it out of a love. 
Go back to that first love. Go back to when it was right. Repent. Do those first works where you're serving out of a great love. Some have said this is speaking of a honeymoon love. Remember when you first got married and and there was the infatuation, there was the honeymoon, there was excitement, and you kind of let that fire die. Why? Because of jobs, you know, you you, you work, and and the kids came into the scene, and you got so busy being parents, and you got so busy meeting bills and, and deadlines and everything else that you lost that first love. And he says, as a Christian, go back and renew that passion for Jesus. You know, I believe we're busier than ever before today. As Christians, we haven't escaped the busyness of this world. We're busier than ever before. Let me ask you a question this morning. How's your love for Jesus? I don't mean how many places are you serving in the church. Kind of dealt with that last week. Everybody's got a gift. Everybody's got a place to serve. I'm asking, how's your love with Jesus? How's your personal quiet time? When's the last time that you got out the Word of God and got on your knees and opened the Bible, begin to pray and take some notes, begin to journal, and say, here's what God's saying to me. And you begin to pray prayers of adoration, telling God how much you love Him, how thankful you are. Is there a time where that was a daily habit in your life, but it's not anymore? Go back to what it was like when it was right. How's your personal devotional life? How's your corporate worship? How are we doing as a church family with that first love, that passionate love? Are we worshiping him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do do we come into this place saying, Lord, I love you, and I'm ready to hear from you? Or are we too busy? Or have we lost that passion? Are we like Martha, and we're like, we we think of coming to church as an obligation, and we've got to do, do, do everything that's required and expected of me, rather than I can't wait for the opportunity, not because I have to, but because I get to, and I want to worship God out of the overflow of what he's doing in my heart. And in my life, Jesus confronted a church that was lacking in passion when it came to their worship. That was an aspirational value. Here at Trinity, we say one of our core values of a church, based on what we see in Scripture, based on the Great Commission, is celebratory worship. And some of you are like, well, Pastor, I've read Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, and I see the Great Commission And it says, go therefore, and it says, make disciples of all nations. And it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all those things I've observed. Lo, I am with you always. But I don't see anything about that being a worship passage. Go back a couple of verses earlier. Let's not take the Great Commission as a text out of context. What were they doing? They were meeting the risen Lord on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when they met Jesus there, it says they worshipped. Even though some doubted, they worshipped. It's in the context of the worship of the celebrated Lord that the Great Commission is given. And all of the works that we're called to do, and we are called to roll up our sleeves and get busy for the King, all of those works are in the context of worshipping our resurrected Lord. And if we want morale to stay high when it comes to the work, sometimes we use that language in in staff meetings and things like that. Are people growing weary and we're doing? Do we need to encourage folks? How how can we be a blessing to somebody? How can we encourage somebody to serve and all that? It's in the context of celebratory worship. When your quiet time is right with God, when your devotional life is right with God, when you are drawing strength from Him and praising Him, when you can drive down the highway 
listening to a Christian radio station and lift your hands before the Lord and say, praise God, and the guy passing you says, that must be one of those Christian idiots, one of those fanatics driving that car. Or sometimes they're going, they're listening to the same station I am, praise the Lord. Those times in your life where you just feel like you can reach out and take Jesus by the hand, he's so close. It's out of the overflow of that, and when we come into this place of worship, and there's passion because it's already been something real in your life through the week, and it's not something that has to be worked up on a Sunday. Listen, I'm not against emotion. I think we need a lot more of it. The difference between emotion and emotionalism is emotion is out of the overflow of what God's doing in your heart. Emotionalism is when the pastor or the worship leader has to work it up in you. And that's not real, and it's not genuine. When it's real and when it's genuine, it's what God's doing in your heart because you're walking with him, and out of the overflow of the heart, you begin to worship, you begin to serve. It's that love for Jesus. Jesus confronted worship that was lacking in passion. They weren't worshiping by loving Christ first. Secondly, I want you to see this morning that Jesus confronted a walk that was lacking purity. He confronted a walk that was lacking purity in at least a couple of the churches here. Now, last week, we saw that there were churches that had a determined walk. They were walking with God, and they were commended even for walking with God, even though others in in their own church at times were not walking with God. But that wasn't the case with all the churches. Look at the church of Pergamum. Look at verses 14 and 15 at this confrontation of chapter 2. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Again, he had some good things to say that we saw last week. But he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the sons of Israel, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now, don't get this confused with what Paul says about there being occasions where you can and other occasions where you should not eat meat sacrificed to idols. He was talking about in a context where you were in no way worshiping the idol and not letting your, your partaking of that to save a, a few bucks on the meat. Don't let that be a stumbling block, and there might be situations where you should or should not. Here, they were clearly, in eating the meat sacrificed to idols, becoming a stumbling block because he tells us so. He says, in, in the same way, you also, in verse 15, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And... There's been a lot of debate over who the Nicolaitans, that in the Greek it means people conquerors, were they, were they kind of a legalistic force or a, a kind of a licentiousness, and I believe it's the second based on what we see in this context here, and I'll elaborate a moment as we think about what he has said here, as he confronted a walk that was lacking in purity. He points out that their wrong beliefs were leading to wrong practices. So not believing right was determining how they would live. Josh McDowell, in talking about bringing up a next generation who will uh, have embrace godly behaviors, he says, under every behavior there is a value, and under every value there is a belief, and that if you embrace the wrong beliefs, you'll have the wrong values that will lead to the wrong behavior. And so it was their beliefs that were shaping their values, shaping their behavior. This aspirational value wasn't even aspired so much at times, wrong beliefs impacting their values. So you know the story of Balaam, right? Numbers chapter 22, when uh, most of us are familiar with the fact that the, the donkey 
speaks to him, why are you hitting me? What is the whole context? What was going on? Remember, Balaam would have been what we would have said a a non-Jewish prophet of that day. And yet, all of a sudden, God is going to use him. Balak wants Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel, God's chosen people. And God is warning Balaam, don't do it. Don't speak a curse on my people. And so while in many aspects of that story, we look back and we say, you know what? God got Balaam's attention. He used the talking donkey to do it. But ultimately, Balaam refused to speak a curse on the children of God. So Balaam's a wonderful guy, right? Not necessarily. He does go back and explain to Balak that I can't pronounce a curse on God's people. However, you know, if you could get some of those beautiful, seductive, Moabite women to engage in a type of seduction and involve them in immorality, you won't have to have me speak a curse on them. God himself will curse them because of their immorality. And so that's what happens. Israel gets caught up in all kinds of sexual immorality. So whatever was happening here, and I believe that verse 15 was the first century application of verse 14, saying here's what's going on with the Nicolaitans. They're kind of seducing the people. They're controlling the people, and they're they're trying to get them to rationalize their values, rationalize their convictions, and say, you know what? This whole thing about purity, it's not a big deal. I mean, after all, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And since we're not saved by works, since we're saved by grace, remember the issue that Paul confronted in Romans chapter 6? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how can we that have died to sin continue to live any longer? There were always those, and there will always be those, who will take the doctrine of grace, a wonderful biblical doctrine we couldn't live without, and they'll take the doctrine of grace, and they will make grace a license to sin when grace should be a liberty to help us be free from sin. And so these people were introducing seductive behavior, a rationalism that would allow them to tolerate a type of immorality in the church and say, hey, it's okay, we're just human. They begin to rationalize their beliefs, justify their sin. And probably the temptation came much like it did in Genesis chapter 3, At the fall, the question mark was put on the Word of God and the words of God. Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? I believe that we live in a world today that the question mark is going to be placed on this Word of God when it comes to your convictions, your values, your living a pure life before God. They were not walking in purity. They had compromised their beliefs, and they were not walking in purity. They were holding to wrong teaching. I want you to also look at the church of Thyatira here when it comes to their walk that was lacking in purity. In chapter 2, if you look down at verse 20, he says, I have a few things against you as well. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. See, false teaching. Said she was of God, a prophetess. But she teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality. The servants of the living God were getting caught up in false teaching that led them astray morally 
and their walk was lacking purity. And then again, to eat meat sacrifice to idols. To get involved in a false belief system that would cause them to defile themselves. I believe he's speaking allegorically there, and it is hard for us to tell exactly what sins. I believe probably literally there were those who were involved in sexual immorality in that day because of all of the, the, the temple gods, little g, the, the, the polytheism that was very prominent in that day. They were embracing all kinds of false teachings, all kinds of false beliefs. But that would say, hey, if you believe this way, it's okay for you to live any way you want to live. And that's so seductive for us today because we hear, whether it's a TV preacher or, or whether somebody comes along with a new distortion of grace, and they kind of say, hey, if you'll believe what I believe, then you can kind of get away with anything you want to get away with. And that's what they were being promised. And there was an impurity. There was a, a, a warning here that they needed to turn and not tolerate that anymore. The word tolerance has become a core value for many today. But he was saying there's some things you shouldn't tolerate. The story was told of a father and a son after a storm went through and took down a, a large oak that on the outside appeared very healthy. And they were amazed that of all the trees that stood the test of the storm, that that large oak fell that was full of leaves. And when it fell over, they noticed the inside was completely hollowed out. And the dad looked at the son and said, look, everything looked good on the outside, but the reason this oak fell, son, was because its core was rotted out. It was rotten to the core. And that's what was happening, I believe, in the church of Thyatira. Is that on the outside, everything looked good, but when the storms came, when the persecution came, whether it was things that were began by the emperor Nero or Domitian, and, and persecution was coming on the church, they were not able to stand because in, in the core, they were defiled. In the core, there was no purity. And sometimes in the 21st century, the church can look so good on the outside, or we can have wonderful buildings and wonderful landscaping, everything be in place. We can be real busy and look like we're doing all the right works, but if we're not living pure lives, if we're not walking with God, if we're rotten to the core, we will not stand the storms of life. And so couples were living in immorality, if you would even call some of the situations couples in the church. They were giving themselves over to sexual perversions of all kinds. Other areas where sin would conquer, the Nicolaitans, maybe it was that they were themselves, not so much the people conquerors, but introductory, uh, introducing a seductive lifestyle that would conquer. We talked about that this morning in our life group. There are so many things that promise to give people freedom and, and power, but end up controlling their lives, whether it's a, a, a drug or alcohol addiction or sexual addiction or you name it. Oh, it promises life and, and promises freedom, but it leads to bondage. And so the people conquerors teaching this Bad theology was leading people to embrace behavior that led them into bondage. So what happens is a person who becomes middle-aged, they don't want to be faithful to their family anymore, they've grown distant, they've lost their passion for Jesus Christ, maybe, maybe they've gone through a midlife crisis of some kind, they begin to rationalize, and, and the first thing they'll say to justify their sin is, well, I don't really know if I believe like you anymore. I don't know if I believe that anymore. It's the teenager who says, you know, there's so much temptation around me, but the Bible says 
wait a minute, you know there was that one professor who said the Bible was just a bunch of hogwash anyway, and if I go with what that professor says, it's not so much that they sit around, we think, man, they're just convincing these college students left and right that the Bible doesn't make sense and, and that there's no scientific evidence for the truth of Scripture and all of that. And it's not that the students are always that smart. It's that they begin to rationalize and they say, you know what, that professor says there is no God. And if there is no God, then how I acted at that party Friday night is not such a big deal anymore. The way I treat other people is not such a big deal anymore. My, my sin is not going to be confronted for eternity's sake. And so I think I'll change my beliefs because this belief makes more room for a walk that's lacking in purity. And they might hold on to some form of religion outwardly but deny the power of God inwardly as we see happen in our next and our, in our final situation here. And that's that Jesus confronted a witness that was lacking power. In, in chapter 3 and verse 1, we see that Jesus is confronting a church that had a reputation at Sardis of being alive, but they were dead. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. They were spiritually dead. Uh, one author that I read this week said that, that that spiritual death has to do with the fact that they were never saved. They were unregenerate. They, they, were, they had this outward form, this outward appearance of, of knowing God, but they had never truly experienced conversion. I think it also pictures the witness of, of, of liberal churches and what I would call the social gospel today. People that are busy. And listen, I believe in social ministry to a degree Jesus would give a, uh, a turn, uh, turn or multiply loaves and fishes. Jesus did a lot of things to connect with the people around him, but he always came through with a gospel message. He always preached the kingdom of the gospel and, and repentance and faith in him. And so, so many times we're out there doing so many things in the name of missions and benevolence that, that aren't, as Greg talked about when he was talking about the the, the project that we just recently experienced with, with, uh, got with uh, Bible poverty. We're not wrapping it in a sandwich, or, or maybe we're giving them the sandwich and not wrapping the gospel in it. And, and so there, there was no truth here. They, they had, it looks alive, it looks good, but there's no gospel content. We might be busy and compassionate and extremely benevolent, but not leading people to faith in Christ. Romans 1.16, you know it. It's the gospel that Paul said is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. And so here's a church that had a reputation of being alive, but there was no gospel transformation. People weren't being truly converted. They were spiritually dead. Then we saw the church at Laodicea. No authentic faith, no power. They were lukewarm. How do we know that? They were leaving Jesus out. And when you get to verse 20 in chapter 3, and we see a verse that's often quoted for evangelism that wasn't a confrontation necessarily of a lost individual. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, and I will come in, and I will dine with them, and that we would have fellowship. I will fellowship with them, they will fellowship with me. We'll be in right fellowship. I think that is a beautiful picture of what salvation is, but that wasn't what that verse was about. The verse was given to a church 
that was lukewarm because while they might have been busy doing a lot of things, Jesus wasn't central in the church. He wasn't central in their testimony. He wasn't central in their witness. And so their witness was lacking in power because they were leaving out Jesus and they were like lukewarm coffee, water, whatever it is <laughs> that you would drink, that you would want either cold like sweet tea in the south. In some places, they, they, they like it lukewarm. But in the south, if you're new to the south, uh, most of you are from here, but in the South, if we order a glass of sweet tea, we mean stack it with ice to the top. We want it cold, or we want our coffee hot. We don't want things room temperature. And by the way, I've heard the stories of, well, cold means distant from God, and, and hot means on fire for God. Likely in this passage, because of the, the rivers around them and everything they were exposed to, and the, the mineral springs and everything else, what he was saying is, at least if it's cold, it's refreshing, and if it's hot, it's soothing and healing. But because it's lukewarm, it's good for nothing. And he was saying, you're a powerless church and you're good for nothing. You're not accomplishing anything. Your witness is lacking power because of that. Because you're out of fellowship with Jesus. He's not even part of your church. I stand at the door and knock. I believe Ichabod, no glory, has been written on a lot of churches today. Because they're about everything except Jesus Christ. Remember this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about making him the center of our lives again. We can look good on the outside. You know, years ago, it was a, a New Year's Day uh, Rose Bowl parade, the parade of roses that they have every New Year's Day was going on. And one of the beautifully decorated floats stopped right in the middle of the parade and had to be pushed out of the parade route because it ran out of gas. Now, that's kind of embarrassing, but it was a lot more embarrassing when you think about whose float it was. It was the float that was put into the parade by the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> a lot of times churches are lacking power in their witness, and we should be the source of that power. We're the ones that have been commissioned with the gospel of Jesus Christ to take this gospel to the world. We, we have become organizations rather than living organisms. People of faith on fire with a passion for God because we, we are worshiping Him and we're walking with Him and out of that, out of having fellowship with Him, our witness is no longer lacking in power. Now we could spend a lot of time going over the warnings that he would follow up with. Let me just summarize it this way to Ephesus. He says, I'm going to remove your lampstand if you don't change. Lampstands, again, represented the churches, the seven churches. So he was saying, if you don't start reaching the people around you, you're going to die, and I'll raise up somebody else who will do it. I was sharing with Brother Larry earlier my heart for church revitalization, and I want to see our church, and I believe you just have to kind of experience that again and again and again. We have to be revitalized. Christians have to be revitalized. But I believe God will say, if you're not going to reach the people around you, your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. I'll raise up somebody who will, and I don't know about you, but I want to get in on it. I want to be a part of what God's doing. So he says to Ephesus, you better change, you better fall back in love with me, or I'll remove your lampstand. To Pergamum, he says, I'll come against you with the sword in my mouth. And you go back to chapter 1, it's, it's a humbling thing for God to judge us before those around us. To Thyatira, he says, your next generation will suffer 
from your lack of moral standards. And that's interesting. That the punishment that was going to come on that church because they compromised their beliefs and tolerated all kinds of immoral behaviors, it was going to have a great effect on the destruction of the next generation. And I said it before, I said it when we dismiss our kids to kids' worship this morning. I want our church to always be about reaching the next generation, but we can't just say, hey, we'll leave it all up to them. We've got to model it. If it's not real with us, if we're not genuine, if we compromise our beliefs, then we will set them up for failure. And then the church of Laodicea, (laughs) man, I'm not sure I even know what all this means, but Jesus says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I think he's just trying to say, you will be a church that I'll get rid of because you make me sick. You know, when, when, when you put something in your mouth and it wasn't what you thought you were putting in your mouth, you know? when, when you can't stand soft drinks and it was a Diet Coke instead of tea and you're like, what, what was that? He gets rid of it. And I want to be a church that's in fellowship with Jesus Christ. He's the central part of everything we do and he's the center of our lives and out of that we're worshiping him out of that we're walking with him out of that our witness begins to have power because Christ in us the hope of glory is empowering that witness and I want to heed these warnings and say Lord I don't want to miss out on what you have for me I don't want to settle for less than what you have for me I want to embrace it all would you bow your heads with me